You're listening to an episode of Law Review Squared, the Law Review Review. It is 8 p.m. on Wednesday, August 11th, 2021. We're joined today by Professor Catherine Young from University of Massachusetts Amherst and our panel, Courtney, Shenley, and Seth. This is the first of a two-part series on the 1L experience. Our next episode will feature a conversation with Dean Daniel Conway to discuss changes made by the faculty at Penn State Dickinson Law. And we always start with an icebreaker, so I'm going to ask our panel to answer the question. The climate has changed, and now it's raining animals. If you had to be caught in an animal rainstorm, which animal would you pick? Let's start with Seth. Uh, probably something docile, like a bunch of pigeons or something. Choosing something that can fly away is probably a good idea. Shema? Oh, man. Um, I can only think about animals that wouldn't want to be stuck in a rainstorm with. Uh, I'll pass on this one. I don't know. Okay. Courtney? Uh, gosh, I think the most chaotic thing I can think of would be like meerkats. They just never really know what to expect. They love to uh, be all up in everything. So I feel like meerkats would be really fun to see how they react in mass. Professor Young. Uh, for me, it would be border terrier puppies. That's a no-brainer. They're incredibly cute. Puppies are a good choice. I think I'll choose kittens. They're also soft, small, and fluffy. Um Reminder that the opinions expressed here today are those of the panelists and do not represent the view of Penn State Dickinson Law, panelists, present, former, or future employers, or any other entity. Contents of this recording do not constitute legal advice. And now I'll turn the episode over to Shenley. Thank you, Tony. Um, this are, the article this week is authored by Professor Young, our guest speaker, um, who is the assistant professor at the University of Massachusetts Amherst and the Department of Sociology. Dr. Young's scholarship is entitled Understanding the Social and Cognitive Processes in Law School that Create Unhealthy Lawyers. This article was published by Fordham University Law Review um, just this year. In the article, Dr. Young writes about the mental transition that some first-year law students experience and how this transition impacts first-year law students' mental health and wellness and their well-being. One of our early episodes of Law Review Square centered on addiction and substance abuse problems in the legal profession. So Dr. Young's scholarship is a great continuum of this conversation. The article is something that many of us can relate to either directly or indirectly, since we have probably seen friends and colleagues struggle with navigating law school. We are very excited to hear more about Dr. Young's observations, and it's a privilege to have them here with us tonight to share some additional insight into this area. So on behalf of all the panelists, I'd like to extend a warm welcome and many thanks to Dr. Young for being with us here tonight. Um, Professor Young, can you please share with our listeners some information about your professional and academic background and what led you to this research? Sure. Um, and first, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. I always love talking about my work. Um, so, uh, yeah, so I'll just give you the, the brief version of my, of my uh, academic background, which is that I went to law school to become a public defender. And about halfway through my first year of law school, one of my professors pulled me aside and said, you know, a lot of the questions you're asking, which tended to be things like, you know, but doesn't this Fourth Amendment ruling create distributive inequalities? Um, you know, my professor was like, you know, Katie, maybe you should consider this JD PhD program we're starting in sociology. I said, I've never taken a sociology class before. And he said, hey, you know, that's okay. So I ended up doing a JD PhD um, at Stanford, which if you have to be anywhere for eight years is a lovely place to be. Um, and I ended up being around the law school for, uh, for, for basically eight years. I mean, so I did my JD and my PhD together. And during that time, um, those eight years, you know, I saw law school classes come in, 
sort of people fall in and love with in out of love with each other. I saw people go through the same struggles over and over. And I started to think, um, gosh, you know, I'm getting all the sociological training. I wonder if in addition to my other research areas, I could draw on my sociological training to figure out how law school is working as an institution and how it might be able to become a better place. So my book, How to Be Sort of Happy in Law School, which is sort of my very first um, writing about law students, really came out of um, me wanting to write the book that I wish that I could have read in law school. Um, And now I guess I'm writing the research that I wish I could have read while I was writing the book. Great. Well, thank you for that. Um, I guess. And then my next question is, like, why did you choose to do this particular study? And had you planned to study the class of 2023 prior to the COVID pandemic? Or is this just something that kind of came together? Well, it kind of came together. I mean, so I I had this idea um, a couple, oh, I don't know, maybe a year or two, actually two years now ago that, gosh, it would be so interesting to do a longitudinal study of law students, because I I actually went out, I mean, this happens to a lot of researchers, I went out looking for a study, it would be a longitudinal look at law students, like how do they evolve over the first year, and I found some quantitative research, but I didn't find any qualitative research, and I thought, well, I'll do the study. Um, At the time, I was doing a bunch of other stuff, I do work on parole, Uh, I do work on how people think about their rights, Uh, I do work on access to justice, but you know, when the pandemic came, I just thought, this is too important not to start now. So I decided to start it with this class of students, um, which I think ended up being really, uh, really kind of interesting and poignant. I think that the, um, I I think that the pandemic year and having students, many of whom were online their entire first year of law school, really kind of turned up the dial on some of the dynamics that already exist in law school. Some of the class differences, I think, were even more poignant. Um, some other differences as well. So I kind of leapt into it. Usually one wants to wait until one has funding um, to start a project, uh, but I've never been one to wait for things like that. So I just kind of leapt in. Um, You're turning to your research. Um, It focuses a lot on the disillusionment that many first-year law students feel within a matter of weeks of starting law school. Um, And I have to be honest that I felt the same sense of disillusionment myself. Um, Mm -hmm. It didn't really hit me until... Um, the winter break. I kind of went through the first semester still with a lot of, uh, with very rose colored glasses on. and was just still very excited and happy to be in law school. Um, once I got past that first semester, I, it kind of like hit me and I was like, wow, what did I really get myself into? Um, so in your opinion, is there more that law schools should be doing to prepare students for this reality or for, you know, this disillusionment period that is likely to happen? Uh, once they start law school? You know, that's, uh, Shalane, that's such a good question. I mean, I I think that, it, you know, it, instead of, and this is sort of what this piece is, is about in a way, um, yeah, I mean, law schools could be doing more to prepare students for the reality of law school, but I think that the more effective approach for law schools would be to prepare themselves for the reality of students and what students are really like and where students are coming from. And I feel like law schools could do a better job meeting students where they're at, um, as well as uh, a better job preparing students for the actual practice of law. So it's not necessarily that I think that schools should be preparing students more for the reality reality of law school. I just sort of think that the reality of law school needs to be structured differently, um, such that it, it wouldn't be so jarring. I mean, so much of law school doesn't need to be the way it is. 
um, and, and doesn't need to have the problems that it has. Uh, many of those problems are kind of a, you know, they're, they're anachronistic at this point. I mean, we don't we don't need to structure law school the way we do. And even if you think about something like uh, what classes we have the first year of law school, like true, some of them are somewhat foundational, civ pro certainly, maybe statutory interpretation if you have that. But why would you take most of the classes that you're going to take that are going to prepare you for the bar exam that very first year and then not touch them for two years and then take a bar exam? I mean, that alone makes absolutely no sense. Why aren't clinics required? Why is no apprenticeship required? I mean, just sort of all of these things um, are are a, a factor of, I mean, maybe they made sense 50 years ago. Uh, maybe not. I don't know. Um, but I certainly don't think they make sense now. Uh, out of curiosity, I don't have a ton of historical reference to how the legal education was accomplished 100 years ago or, or more. But I know that early on, uh, some people became lawyers by by serving apprenticeships, basically, and reading for the bar um, and, and studying that way as opposed to attending law schools. Do you think that like the, the mental stresses that exist were the same for those people, um, that they ended up having similar outcomes? That's a really interesting question, Tony. I mean, I don't know. Uh, that's the short answer. I mean, we do know that for, so I think, um, oh, I'm embarrassed that I don't remember the decade, but there um, are, I think the earliest study of law students' mental health was maybe in the, okay, I'm, I'm probably going to be wrong, but I, I'm going to say it was in the 60s. It was quite a while ago. It could be earlier. And a lot of the results were kind of similar to the results we see today about law students' mental health, which is interesting and surprising to me, um, in part because students themselves tend to attribute a lot of their, um, well, not, not a lot, but at least some of what they go through has to deal with like gender politics, racial politics, like other like intersectionalities um, in terms of their own identity and law school not really meeting students where they're at. And I do think that's very true and a huge problem. But in terms of just mental health issues, at least since the 60s, we've seen significant law student mental health issues um, where those studies, you know, sort of as good as the studies being done in the last you know, 20 years, not, not really. Um, but I think there's been... I think it's sort of seen as a rite of passage that you're sort of supposed to be broken down um, before you, you know, are built back up as a lawyer. And I think, I mean, to me, it's more grounded in kind of mythology than it is in the reality of what being a lawyer is like. In, for, for the book, I actually interviewed um, a lot of alums. I interviewed about 50 alums uh, of different law schools. And, you know, when I asked them what was most useful in law school, they always said things like legal research and writing, or it was their clinics, or it was the classes that we, you know, either don't prioritize, tenure track folks aren't teaching them, and or their past fail, right? Negotiation, mediation, legal profession, ethics, all these things, um, library skills, research skills that we see as kind of icing on the cake as opposed to the core of law school, which we see as, you know, property. No one said, gosh, property law, that was just really understanding property law from the 1920s. Gosh, that that really was what was the cornerstone of my legal education, which is not to say that shouldn't be in there. That's not what I mean at all. I, I guess I just mean that uh, we need to think carefully about, about what we're emphasizing and about whether we're really preparing students for practice or whether we're simply continuing 
what we've always done because, well, it sort of works and we're kind of risk averse as institutions. One of the things you had mentioned was uh, requiring some of that hands-on experience. And here at Dickinson, one of the requirements to graduate is we have to have six credits of either clinic or internship work or something that's hands-on through uh, what they call semester at practice. Um, so hmm. it'd be really interested to see as other schools hopefully gain the same type of requirement, what that would um how that would affect your research. But uh, for right now, based on what you're seeing, are there steps that students can take to bridge the distance between coming to terms with their professional identity and their idealistic identity? Gosh, that's great. That's such a good question. I mean, I think that, um, I think, yeah, I think there are a lot of things students can do. So I, I think, you know, one is sort of very practical in terms of if something seems even, you know, remotely interesting to you, Try to understand, like, have a conversation with someone who's actually practicing that kind of law to see what it's like. That's hugely important, and often students don't do that. Often students kind of tend to talk to the folks who come to law school, who tend to be law firms. And so it tends they tend to be sort of more passive receivers of what law schools give them, as opposed to actively seeking out the kind of legal practice they want, they, they may want to um, to pursue. Uh, you know, I, I think that one thing that law schools could do, um, which actually, Shanley gets to one of your questions, is that I think that law schools could emphasize that the project of law school is really to figure out, it's not to be like the platonic conception of a law student who gets the highest grades possible and does law review and checks all these boxes, right? It's to figure out what kind of lawyer and what kind of person you want to be after law school. So I think emphasizing that there are so many right ways to do law school and so many cool ways to be a lawyer, um, I, I think that's really important. And I, I don't think that all law schools do a great job of that at this point. Okay. So one of the podcasts that we did earlier, um, also going back to um, when we first started was whether or not grades are immoral. And I still think about this topic often and go back and forth about how I feel about grades and the morality of them, or if there is or isn't one. Um, and in the law review article, you talk about the curve. And while you didn't take a position on whether or not you thought the curve was good or bad, you did highlight how emotionally harmful um, the grading process can be to a student's mental well-being. So I wanted to ask you, what are your thoughts about the morality of grades? Or do you have any thoughts of whether or not grades are morale, uh, if, if they're morale or if they're not? Yeah, I mean, uh, gosh, I mean, it's an interesting way to put the question because you know, it's like asking, like, okay, is like, is cold call immoral? Are cold calls immoral or is teaching property immoral? Like, I don't know. I don't really think about it in moralistic terms. Um, I, I tend to think about things in more practical terms, I guess, when I think about pedagogy. Um, but boy, that's an interesting question. I mean, so w one thing that students will tell me um, is, gosh, I wish my school didn't have grades. I really wish my school would get rid of grades because, boy, those schools where people don't have grades like Yale, I bet they're just happy all the time. Well, you talk to students at those schools and it turns out that law students find all kinds of other ways to figure out who's the best and who's on top. Because, I mean, when you think about it, law students are constantly um, applying for things. They're, they're applying for, they're competing for scarce things, right? 
Maybe they want clerkships. There aren't enough to go around. They want certain jobs. There aren't enough to go around. Clinic spots, not enough to go around. There's always competition. So at some schools that don't have grades, um, what students have said is, yeah, actually, I don't like it as much because cultural capital, my word, not theirs, um, cultural capital basically means that if you're really good at sucking up to professors and figuring out how to get the right kinds of recommendations, that ends up being kind of the coin of the realm as opposed to grades. So, you know, talking with some of those students really gave me a perspective and it made me wonder, it made me wonder about whether eliminating grades is really the, the, you know, the savior that a lot of students think it would be. Um, You know, I, I do think that the curve is hugely problematic. And the reason that I think the curve is problematic is, well, a few reasons. You know, one, as you know from the article, it gets students, it, it, it puts students into competition with each other, right? Like, if I do worse, you do better. And that's just how it is. It's not like we're all working together to, you know, reach a certain standard. And as a professor, it's tremendously frustrating because what I would love is for all of my students to reach A-level work. I mean, practically speaking, that's not going to happen because there's kind of a natural distribution. And also some people just aren't going to work as hard in the class or, you know, that's okay too. Um, but I think that everyone should be able to get an A. So I like the idea of having a standard that anyone in the class could reach if they work hard enough, practice hard enough, as opposed to putting them in competition with each other. So I guess if I had to choose between grades and the curve and one was immoral, it would be it would be the curve that I think is is really immoral. But I don't know if I would say I don't know. I just, I've never thought it. In, in, I thought about it in terms of morality. Um, and you're right. And in, in the article, I don't take a position on whether the curve is is good or bad. I mean, the pushback that I get from law students and law professors tends to be, well, if there wasn't a curve, how could employers possibly hire people? But then if I ask employers oh, what are they curved on? Like, what, you know, what, what is this school curved on versus that school? They have no idea. Um, oh, is this person, you know, is, is this school tend to be sort of clumpers or spreaders? Oh, I don't know. Like, they really have no idea. They look at grades. They don't really look at grades in relation to each other. So to the extent that that argument about employers or about, you know, um, you know judges or people who need to, you know, rank students against each other, um, you know, which, which obviously is problematic, but to the extent that we, we, you know, quote unquote, need to do that, I guess I don't know why the curve would ever need to be involved. So what you just expressed is, is actually was really frustrating to me on the last hiring cycle, hearing a hiring partner refer to these curved grades as objective. And oh they're not, right? I mean, these are the users of the grades and they don't even know what, what, what the, the measurement is. Um, you know, my B in property this year reflects a totally different understanding of property law than somebody who took it five years ago on a different distribution because they're all measured against each other, even if it was the same professor. So, um, yeah, it's certainly aligned to my experience. Yeah, I really, and, and yeah, and I haven't found very many professors who enjoy curving. Um, and I think it gives students also the idea that grades are arbitrary. And what I would say is grades aren't, and they're not totally arbitrary. It's not like my, you know, it's not like if I'm in a good mood, you'd get like a three nine. And if I'm in a bad mood, you'd get like a two nine. Um, it doesn't vary that much. 
But something that, yeah, I mean, exactly like you're saying, Tony, I mean, my B next year might not be my B this year. It seems kind of problematic. It's certainly not objective. That's discouraging. (laughs) Um, Sorry. Yeah, that's right. It's the reality. I'm coming to terms with it. I'm I'm dealing with it. Um, (laughs) I think what you were talking about, students kind of competing each other, kind of it sets up the next question. Um, So this one was kind of in the in the article. You kind of the one of the students, I think of her name was Zahara. She talked Mm -hmm. about kind of developing like a two a quote unquote two face, um, Mm -hmm. where she would cheer on students kind of quietly when they weren't doing well in class because. Uh, she was thinking that, okay, well, if this person is messing up, that means that I have to be doing better than them. Um, and so it made her feel like a, that she was being a successful law student because she was seeing this person basically falter in class. And so um, my question is that when she's secretly, um, when a person is secretly happy that someone is not doing well, um does that kind of tr- uh, contribute to feelings of isolation? Because it doesn't seem like you are um, engaged in kind of a collegial aspect since you're like kind of rooting for someone's downfall. I wanted to kind of see your thoughts about that. Yeah, I mean, I'm glad you picked up on that part. I found that to be such a problematic trend. I mean, maybe not a surprising one, but I was surprised at how self-aware some students were about it. So like Zara, the student you you mentioned was, she was so deeply, probably the most deeply troubled by it of any of the students I talked to, because she is just like one of these people who is like excited about everyone wants to like you meet her and you just like want to be your, her friend. Um, and she is she's super cool, super friendly. And she was just like, for the first time ever, I realized, like, I don't want these people to do well. Like, I am not wishing well for other people. And I think for for her and for people like her, it can be internally very corrosive um, to think about your success in relative rather than absolute terms. I mean, I think it's more problematic for for some people than other people, but I think certainly it, it does for students like Zara, I think it does contribute to a sense of, uh, isolation, a sense of alienation, um, a sense of actually uh, John Bliss, who's at University of Denver Law School, has some great research on this, but the idea that there's this role distancing from who you are as a as a law student versus who you are as a person, it's nice if these things can be integrated. And we know, based on social psychological research, that if your roles are integrated, if you get to be kind of the same person at the grocery store, at home, and at work, and, uh, you know, hanging out with your friends, I mean, of course, no one's, no one's the same in every situation, but if you don't have to be, you know, sort of radically different from one situation to the next, um, you're happier, right? Your life is more integrated. And I think that for a lot of law students, um, they just they just don't feel like that. And they don't feel like their life is integrated. And it can be very confusing. It can be very alienating for them. Um, and, uh, and I do think it contributes to law student depression. Um, certainly not for all students, but uh, unquestionably for some. Um, in the article, there was an observation by some of the students um, about males dominating the classroom discussion. And I was just, it, it kind of put me in mind of me. Um, I felt like I did a lot of talking like uh, Katie and Jasper did. And um, I felt like I, you know, I pulled back because I was taking up too much space. Um, but the reason I would volunteer in class a lot is because there wouldn't be a lot of other people who were volunteering 
And I was just under the assumption that uh, maybe, you know, my student colleagues didn't want to talk um, or, you know, that maybe that they weren't prepared. But um, because we were on a Zoom platform, we did a lot mm-hmm. of breakout rooms. And mm-hmm. when we went to the breakout rooms, I would always be surprised because in the breakout rooms, um, you know, the students were much more engaged and they were much more talkative. Um, so I, I just I kind of came to the conclusion that maybe some people just didn't like publicly speaking or speaking in a large uh, platform, like the, the full classroom. So I was kind of interested in like, when, and I'm not even sure if you can answer this, but I was always curious about like, are people just so intimidated to talk in that in that um, classroom setting that, you know, it, it might, you know, kind of contribute to their 1L angst or, you know, like, I always think like, do these people like really want to be lawyers? Like they just seem so timid. Like what's going on here? Um, So (laughs) I just kind of wanted to get your thoughts about that. I think that many people are intimidated to volunteer in class because, well, for one, I would say there are a lot of different kinds of lawyers. So I mean, plenty of great lawyers are, are out there and they're timid. They're like, they're not all in court. They're not all like arguing in front of people. There are plenty of great lawyers that are like doing contracts, writing briefs, like you know, writing like amicus brief to the Supreme Court, stuff like that. Um, so, you know, certainly there are lots of kinds of lawyers. Um, but I mean, beyond that, you bring up such a good point. And so I asked the students who felt intimidated to to volunteer in, in class. Um, and a lot of times it was really, and it was disproportionately women, and it was a fear of being judged negatively because they know that their classmates are texting about them or about each other because of course they are, or even if they're not, they feel like they are. So there's this, this worry. And I mean, it's funny because there are all these, I I think I say this in the article, I can't remember if it got cut or not. Um, But if you read, like there was this, this girl's guide to law school that I was like reading online. And it was basically like, be less intimidated about cold calling girls. And I was just like, well, just be less intimidated. Like that's that's such bad advice. Don't worry about what people think of you. It's like, well, but we know from all the research that women are judged more harshly. So actually like you'd be kind of nuts not to, not to think that people are judging you more harshly as an empirical fact. They are, if you're a woman, um, and so, uh, you know, I, I think that's that came up a lot. Gender came up a lot. Um, about half the, the folks in my study are people of color. And particularly for those who are the only or one of the only um, uh, people of their race or ethnicity in their either in that classroom or in many cases in their entire law school class, there's just this sense of like, I know that a lot of the people around me are like looking at me like I'm the only Latina in the entire room. And so if I speak and I say something that seems out of turn, am I going to be judged on two levels and are assumptions going to be made about people like me? So I heard this from students of color. I also heard this from queer students. Um, there were uh, a couple of students, I'm thinking particularly of one woman who, who identifies as a lesbian you know, and she's kind of masculine of center. And she was basically like, you know, I'm afraid that if I say something, even if like a straight white dude said it, um, I'm afraid that they'll think I'm the angry lesbian in the corner. 
And so they're just sort of afraid of being judged in that way, which, you know, as, as someone identifiable as a lesbian myself, I totally could relate to that. Um, and so, uh, you know, I think there are a lot of reasons why, why people feel intimidated um, to, to volunteer in class. Um, some people actually push themselves to volunteer in class more because they were intimidated to get called on. because They thought that would be kind of even worse. Um, but this sort of sense of, of students, uh, students taking up too much space. I mean, you asked about men and women talking uh, different amounts. I had this, <laughs> I had this great exchange with one student that I put in the article and I was talking with her and I said, why do you, why do you think like, she kept talking about how, how men talk more than women, men talk more than women. And I said, well, why do you think men talk more in, in class? I, I just don't understand. And she said, Katie, do you ever feel like, you know, you're in a room or something and you're talking too much? And I said, oh, God, yes, all the time. I fear that. And she said, yeah, I don't think guys have that. Um, and she was. And so we both kind of like cracked up. And, and actually, some of the men I talked to said something kind of similar. They were like, yeah, if I want to talk, I just talk. I don't know what's up with these women who like feel like they can't talk. Um, so it's not like they were, you know, judging you know, uh, women for talking a bunch or whatever, but we're socialized differently. So it, it created totally different classroom experiences. And I think the way that we teach and the pedagogy we use um, in, uh, uh, in law school classrooms just isn't really up on, it has not caught up with the reality of life as students come into law school. I just want to chime in and that this idea that, um, there may be, I don't know, a, a racial gender component to this um, that squares really well with my experience. So I, mm -hmm. I don't code exactly white or um, any specific minority. I'm just kind of this nebulous thing um, as far as race is concerned. But I went to a, a historically black college and university, University of Arkansas, which was about 96% black. And that is where... I first started putting an intentional pause in to answering questions because um, my, my bachelor's and my master's are in biology and from that university. Um, and I, at first when I got there, it was like, you know, professor answers a question, hand goes up, answer it. But people would defer to that because I was there and I was like, no, that's not right. Everybody's supposed to be getting the education. <laughs> I'll wait to see if anybody else is going to answer before I try to answer it. And that's kind of stuck with me for a long time because I was taking up all the space in the room, um, mm -hmm. even just by being there. So um, that squares to that. I mean, my, my experience here was very similar to Jasper that I had from the article. That's interesting. That's really, that's really, really interesting. Yeah. I mean, I, so when I was in law school, I did this, I mean, this is a good, you know, red flag. You should be a sociologist. I started doing this thing where I mapped where students were sitting and I was particularly interested in gender. So I would, because some professors set the seating chart on the first day of class and some professors set the seating chart on the first day of the second week of class. And so what I started doing was mapping how many where men and where women were sitting and where the seating chart got set. And what I found in my little experiment that I, I suspect is kind of representative is that if you set the seating chart the first day of class, the people who are kind of holding back kind of need to see what the room looks like, kind of need to, you know, maybe they're a bit more cautious. There were fewer women and people of color in the first two rows. However, if you waited a couple of weeks before you set the seating chart, 
it actually did kind of even out, um, which I thought was really interesting. And, you know, there's so many of these little pedagogical techniques that we could use um, as people who teach law students um, that that I think are, you know, are, are really sort of small, but just increase people's comfort level. Like even like Tony, you're talking about your own kind of experience of self-awareness. Um, you know, I've pulled aside students before um, and said, you know, I love hearing from you in class. Um, I'm also a little bit concerned that some people don't think as quickly as you do. That's a nice way to phrase it, right? Um, so, so what I'm thinking is, could you challenge yourself to only speak every other class or to say the class meets three times a week? Go totally silent one class time a week. Um, and just see, see what the experience is like for you. I'm really curious. And so just sort of being aware of that and having like interventions or pulling someone aside and saying, hey, look, Ender, it seems like you're not talking in class a lot and I'd just love to hear from you more. Like, what can I do to make class more comfortable for you? And you'll be surprised. Students will tell you, oh, I need to sit in the front. I can't see the board. Or I just hate cold calls. I'm scared all the time. Or, you know, I mean, whatever. I've even had, uh, this was with an undergrad class, but I even had, a situation where a student was like, well, I'm afraid I'm going to say the wrong thing and I'm just scared. And the first time I talk in a class, I'm always scared to talk. And so I said, okay, let's do this. I'm going to tell you a question ahead of time. We're going to pretend it's totally like just random and you're going to be able to prepare the answer. So, like I asked this question, a bunch of hands go up. I call on her. She like reads her answer that she's written out. And I was like, oh my God, that was brilliant. And then I just like moved around to the next part. Like after that, she talked in class. So just sort of like really caring and being, you know, being attuned to what your students need to feel comfortable participating, I think can be really key. But to me, it's a problem because we don't, I mean, we don't, it's not that, you know, law professors don't care about this stuff. I think often they're not necessarily equipped pedagogically to do this. I mean, Tony, correct me if I'm wrong. We're not hiring law teachers for their um, teaching chops, for the most part, right? That's my understanding uh, for yeah. all of academia. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, I'll give you, this may get cut from the episode, but I will tell you, as a veteran, when I first started, when I went back to get my bachelor's, I initially, coming off deployments, I had to sit in the back because I didn't want anybody behind me. I don't know, Courtney, if you're, you were like that also. Um, which is totally different than like now I sit much closer to the front. But, you know, academia is a much more comfortable environment for me these days. Uh, I don't know if, you know, there are more veterans now in law schools and other college um, things. I don't know how well, I mean, I know that universities and professors try and accommodate veterans, but I don't know how well that's going to come. That's interesting. I mean, that actually brings up such a, a good point too. And, and I don't know, we don't always know which of, I mean, I certainly don't know which of my students are veterans um, or I don't, I mean, unless they choose to tell me, I don't know where they, um, where they are, are coming from in terms of their experience. And one thing that I've realized in all these interviews with law students is that everyone is the only something in their law school class. So even the person who looks like the most typical law student ever may be the only one in the class who's, this is a real example, whose brother got arrested for a felony that year and who was just terrified about it every day, even though he looks like the richest, whitest guy who you've ever seen, the most stereotypical law student, 
uh, everyone is the is the only something, and um, and everyone is scared that people will find that out, or they'll find it out and won't care, or they'll find it out and won't respect them. And I think that there's also what I've seen is like a sense of not only is there a tendency for law students to kind of hide those things that they perceive as weaknesses or flaws in a you know in a, in a what's supposed to be a very professional setting, right? They want to look invincible to, to people. Um, but also sometimes they don't feel entitled to, um, you know, they, they don't want to ask for special favors. They don't necessarily feel entitled to share their identity if it's not something that is easily understandable or scrutable or fits into a box. Um, so, you know, I, I think that's another example of, of ways that we could build or an, or an opportunity, I guess, for building in uh, ways for law students to understand each other as people, not just as future, you know, co-professionals. When I was reading through the article, um, I think the the part that probably stopped me the most in my tracks while reading was um, the perspective from Angelica about the afterthoughts. So walking into a classroom, um, cold calling doesn't, you know, keep me up at night, but boy, do my answers to cold calls really, um, I think the phrase you used was consumed her thoughts and that really uh, hit home for me. Um, so I have a question for the group. Do you feel the pressure of being cold called makes me feel, makes you feel like you had to memorize the minutia of the case as opposed to putting it all together into bigger conceptual issues? Yeah, I think it, I think it did. Um, I, especially early on, I think in the first semester, I, I remember I would spend, it would be like 30, 40 pages of torts reading. And I would spend probably seven or eight hours a night reading it. And I would get in class and I would not remember anything. And I would get almost every cold call wrong. So I ended up hating torts. <laughs> I love the professor, but but I uh, hated the class. So yeah, definitely. Uh, I didn't think that, so for me, because I kind of had like a little strategy that I came up with. Um, I would volunteer so I wouldn't get cold called. And now uh, that seemed to work for me. So I felt like if I would volunteer early, you know, say my piece, talk about the things that I actually knew and felt comfortable with, I was pretty much golden for the rest of the class. So I kind of stuck with that. It wasn't until the second semester with in con law with Professor Donaldson where he didn't really solicit volunteers. He kind of just had like these cold call conversations with students and just kind of kept going on and on and on that I was kind of like terrified about being cold called because you just never knew when it was coming and how long the conversation would last. So mm. my strategy didn't work at that point, uh, but I felt like for the rest of the 1-0 year, that, that strategy pretty much served me well. I, I'm going to be all like lawyerly and I'm going to answer a question with a question, I think, because for me... <clears throat> Cold calls don't have that much, uh, didn't really scare me very much. And I didn't feel like I had to memorize minutia. Um, I did have to read the case closely, of course, but I was trying to do that with everything as it was. Um, all of us here are actually, you know, we're not in law school immediately after going to college at 18. Um, and like, so for me, I'm 42 or 43 i'm in my 40s i've been in careers i like i know i've had accomplishments um you know if i give a bad answer in class i've made mistakes at work also you know in, in my work also and th the world has not ended 
So if I give a bad answer in class, the world's not going to end. They're not going to kick me out of law school. I know that. Um, I wonder if the kids who go straight from high school to college to law school and never really experience the real world where people do make mistakes um, have more stress than you know, I expected that to be the case in my research, and it seems not to be bearing out. Um, though it's a, it's a, it's an interesting hypothesis, and I, I sort of thought maybe the same thing, um, but it, it, it doesn't seem to be true, at least for these fifty-two-ish students. But I don't know. I mean, I guess that's sort of also push back, Tony. I mean, I wonder what you think of it. So I'm like, okay, so I'm imagining myself now going back to law school, like. I mean, there are so many things I would do differently, starting with paying attention in contracts. But um, I think uh, I think that I still, even though my experience of cold calls is pretty similar to Seth's, actually, um, I think I still wouldn't like I wouldn't care if I got stuff wrong, but I would be annoyed at what seems like a stupid system that has very little utility. I mean, to me, cold calls don't really mirror legal practice because it's not as if you're sitting in, you know, a group of 60 attorneys and a judge looks at one of you and, you know, randomly chooses someone to give an answer. Like now, if you're, if you're prepping a trial, if you're, you know, uh, uh, in a trial or you are, you know, doing oral argument, you have prepared a ton for something really specific. So to me, the panel system makes more sense. Also, like as a professor, I don't know, like I want people to participate in like when they're interested in participating. I don't, you know, I, so, so I'm sort of more of a volunteer person. But actually, when I teach, because I'm, I'm now going to moonlight um, as, a, as a law professor, I teach in a sociology department at UMass. Um, we don't have a law school at the Amherst campus. My closest law school is Western New England School of Law. And I'm going to moonlight as an evidence professor this term. And I'm going to try, I think I'm going to try something very interested in what the panel thinks of this. Because my thought is some people learn really well with cold calls. They say things like, makes me, it makes me read. It's so great. And other people hate it and they're terrified. It doesn't help them learn. So what I'm thinking is, okay, how about you have a participation grade. It's like, you know, 10% of your grade, 15% of your grade, whatever. You can be in the cold call group or you can be in the volunteer group. And it's totally up to you. However you learn best, think about it. You decide. Um, if you want to be in the cold call group, you might get cold called. If you want to be in the volunteer group, never going to cold call you. What do you think? Would you have liked that in law school? Would that have been useful to your learning? I will say that um, our property professor, uh, I was in a different section from um, Seth, Tony, and Courtney. But um, during, at the beginning of the year, he kind of he asked us, he's like, do you want me to cold call or do you just want volunteers? And I think that there were three people who wanted cold call. Everybody else was just like volunteers. And and he kind oh, of understood that and um, definitely appreciated like that he was, um, you know, kind of took the approach that you did. He was like, you know, I, I want to make this as comfortable as I can because you're never going to be in a situation where you're, you're going to be working professionally and someone's just want to cold call you. Um, so I, I definitely appreciate that approach that he kind of centered the students' needs um, and asked, I mean, I kind of felt bad for those three people who wanted to get cold call, but I felt like we had other classes where there were options. Oh, so them. they didn't get to choose to be cold call. Because I'm kind of thinking, I want the students vote. It's just you're on one list or the other and it's totally your Oh, choice. no, it was like majority ruled. So okay, okay. You know, everybody voted against cold calls. 
And uh, we just went for a volunteer based class. So yeah, got it. Got it. I think my concern, like just the way my brain (laughs) reads that option, I would probably sign up for the volunteer side of the list, but then every day going to class, I would panic did I earn my 10%? And I'd probably end up over-volunteering beyond what was necessary <laughs> um, ah. just because I would never be sure where that where that 10% gets drawn. Whereas, that, whereas if I'm cold called and I feel prepared and I answer adequately, I think, okay, I, I earned my points today. Oh, that's interesting. So what if I said, um, as I usually do when I do just a volunteer class, like, you know, okay, so the class meets twice a week. Uh, you know, if you go two weeks in a row without ever volunteering, like that's probably not great. Like maybe try to volunteer at least once a week. Yeah, but certainly those, you don't need to be volunteering every class. Yeah, those parameters would definitely help. <laughs> yeah, yeah, oh, that's interesting. Yeah, I'm actually going to do, I think I'm going to, I persuaded someone uh, at, at another law school who's teaching a large class as well to try this in a, as an experiment too. So we're trying to get, see how many people we can get to try this out and kind of see if it works for law students because everyone learns differently. And is this a way to, you know, tailor things to to different learners' preferences? Maybe. I don't know which one I would prefer to see, but I like hearing so many ideas about better ways to teach, whether that's what you're talking about or um, during the pandemic, I saw two full professors eminent in their field, they could have chosen to check out and just, you know, lecture into the camera if that's what they wanted to. And I'm thinking of Professor Groom and Professor Terry, and both of them tried different things over the over the days of their courses to try and, and, and get things across. I think it was very frustrating for, for Professor Groom because he kept trying all kinds of different things, recording portions, not recording portions, and, and so on. Um, so, um, I, I do think that I, I like hearing ideas like this, and I I, I do think that faculty care. So. <laughs> Many of them do. I you know I was I was listening to a podcast, and um, Maybell Romero, um, who's a, a law professional, also scholar of of uh, law and rurality, who I really respect, was talking about the ways that the pandemic might permanently change law school teaching, and just I, I feel like in some ways the pandemic has pushed law professors to do things that, um, well, I, I don't mean this in, in as flip a way as it sounds, but that other professors have known for a long time kind of work. Like I've heard law professors say things like, you know, if you put students in groups and have them work on a problem, sometimes their understanding really develops. And I'm like, yeah, it does. You know, if you, if you don't necessarily have all the weight on the final exam seems like it gives students a better chance to learn as they go along and i'm just like yeah it does doesn't it sure yeah i mean i'm being like a little bit silly but uh, but i do feel like the pandemic has forced people to try a lot of different things and i and i think that some of that is good and will really stick and has gotten us out of some of the teaching ruts that we had fallen into that are kind of once you fall into certain teaching ruts, it's easy to just, you know, keep keep treading the same territory. Um, so, Professor Young, we got a question from uh, one of our student colleagues, Phyllis, who couldn't be with us tonight. Um, she had a chance to read your scholarship, and she was curious, um, where do you see the future of the mental health and wellness movement in the legal field? 
Um, particularly, she's curious um, if you believe that this movement has the strength to disrupt the status quo of the legal field, or is it just a passing facade? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, that's uh, that's a great question for Phyllis. I mean, you know, I'm of two minds about it, and I think it depends how optimistic I'm feeling on any given day. I mean, I see a lot of great movement. There are many law schools that are bringing, uh, you know, individual counselors um, or therapists in-house um, so that law schools can, or law students can actually talk to uh, a therapist who maybe has a JD, really understands law students. Um, that's amazing. At the other end of the spectrum, um, I have law schools where, you know, I, I've talked to students who literally have not been able to get an appointment with uh, a mental health person. Um, so, you know, I, I'm not so sure. I see a lot of movement, um, around things like, um, okay, like, you know, maybe the Dean of Students is looking at mental health and wellness. And so they bring in a speaker like me, or they start a once a week yoga thing, or they, you know, they, they do like all of these great things. But what I don't see yet at most schools is for one, hiring people who are experts in this. I mean, it seems like schools that have faculty members who are uh, who who really do work on wellness and law students kind of those faculty members tended to do what they're doing later after doing something else. It's not that law schools are like, oh, 